Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning everybody and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty program with the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is Kim Doyle. Hi everyone. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And uh, John is not going to be with us today. He'll come back next week, we hope. All right, well, despite all the evidence to the contrary, Washington is still determined to try and raise tensions in the Ukraine. It's Washington, not Moscow, who's the real escalator of tension in this part of the world, and that Washington's installed puppet leader in Kiev, Petro Poroshenko, who is currently waging a brutal military war against his own people in the eastern Ukraine, he's the real dictator in residence and not Vladimir Putin, at least so far as the Ukraine is concerned. The Ukraine government's latest manoeuvre, which has been an effort to undermine the Minsk Minsk II agreement with a requirement for a rebel surrender. Now, there's been a new peace agreement, ceasefire engendered, But the Ukraine government's added a further uh, condition to this, making it almost impossible to fulfil. And this is likely to drive the country back into full-scale civil war and push the US and Russia closer to a nuclear showdown. The Ukrainian government has effectively guaranteed a resumption of the civil war, which US hardliners and the mainstream US media will no doubt blame on Putin rather than the Ukrainians. US media is focused on the so-called Minsk II agreement, ceasefire component, first claiming it was being sabotaged by the rebels and then later on acknowledged that, yes, while it was shaky, it had been relatively successful. But the larger point of Minsk, Minsk II was that it could provide for a political settlement of the civil war by arranging talks between Kiev and the authorities in the east, that would lead to giving those in the East some degree of self-rule. Now, this is something the Americans don't want, because to them, the Ukraine is a way of uh, biting on the bottom, so to speak, of of Russia. But but the implementing law that emerged this week from the Ukrainian parliament inserted a clause into this agreement requiring the rebels to surrender to the Ukrainian government and then let Kiev organise elections before a federal structure is even brought in. In other words, they want the rebels to completely surrender and no doubt be dealt with punitively before they will agree to the ceasefire. The leaders of the Donetsk and Luks People's Republic, that's the people under the Russian air, pro-Russian people, have protested this bait-and-switch tactic, declaring that the change was unacceptable. We agree to a special status for Donbass within a renewed Ukraine, although our people want total independence. We agree to this compromise to avoid the spilling of fraternal blood, a concern that doesn't extend to the Americans. Kiev's manoeuvre, reflecting the bellicose position of neocon Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and other US hardliners, puts pressure on Angela Merkel of Germany and the French President Hollande to get Ukraine's President Petro Poroshenko to return to the original understanding of the Minsk II or to watch the regime fighting leading to a potential showdown between a nuclear-armed Russia and the US. 
The surrender first negotiated later stipulation raised by the Ukrainians also raises questions about the strength of Merkel and Obama to overcome resistance from America's powerful neoconservatives, who've exploited the Ukraine crisis to isolate Russia and drive a wedge between Obama and Putin. To a greater extent, the Ukraine crisis became Newland, who's the Assistant Secretary of America, became her baby as she railed Ukraine's business leaders and political activists to challenge Yankovic and discuss with the American ambassador in early February 2004 how to midwife this thing. In other words, how to get rid of the elected Ukrainian government and uh, conduct a, a coup. In the same conversation, Newland, the American, expressed her disgust at the European uh, Union's less aggressive approach to the crisis. And to quote her very poetic wars, uh, words, she said, fuck the EU. I quote there, it's not me speaking, that's her. This is the American. So that <laughs> give you an idea of their attitude. The uprising in Kiev reached its peak on February the 22nd, 2014, when a violent coup spearheaded by neo-Nazi militias from Western Ukraine drove the elected Yankovic from office, with the US State Department immediately declaring the new regime legitimate though it was staged by a coup. The coup government then sought to impose its control over the ethnic Russian East and South, which had been Yankovic's base of support. Protected by Russian troops who were already based in the Crimea on a base leased agreement, the people of the Crimea voted to succeed, secede from the Ukraine and rejoin Russia, an annexation that took place a year ago. Uprisings also occurred in the eastern Donbass region, with hastily arrived referendum also seeking independence from Kiev. The, the coup regime responded by declaring those resisting in the East to be terrorists, not a new charge, you would think, and mounting a punitive anti-terrorist operation that relied on army artillery to bombard uh, eastern Ukraine cities and Nazis and other right-wing militias were sent in to go in for the brutal street-to-street -street fighting. Thousands of ethnic Russians were killed in these offences as the rebels were pushed back into their strongholds of Donetsk and Luhansk. However, receiving replies, supplies and other assistance from Russia, the rebels turned the tide of the conflict and began driving the Ukrainian military back, inflicting heavy losses. To stop the rout of government forces last September, the first Minsk ceasefire established a tentative front-line around the rebel strongholds. But Kiev continued to squeeze the rebel-held cities by cutting off access to banking and other services, while neo-Nazis and other militias undertook death squad operations to kill rebel sympathisers in government control zones. When that first ceasefire broke down, the rebels made new gains against the Ukrainian military, prompting Merkel and Holland to broker a second ceasefire to stop the rot which included a structure for resolving the crisis with a political settlement to grant eastern Ukraine substantial autonomy. But Newland and the other US hardliners objected to these concessions and trade-offs arranged by Merkel and Holland and accepted by Poroshenko and Putin. The US hardliners began plotting how to reverse what they claimed was appeasement of Russian aggression. A US politician was heard adding... It's painful to see our NATO partners are getting cold feet. <laughs> Senator Joe McCann of Arizona, an enlightened area, I'm sure, 
got worked up into such a lather that he started making comparisons to Neville Chamberlain going to Hitler to appease Hitler. Oh, we're really like, getting overexcited about this, aren't they we? They were getting very... Uh, uh, something definitely was actually happening. Uh, they likened Merkel to Chamberlain and Pultenby suddenly became Hitler. Yet through all the years scheming and manoeuvres by Newland and other US officials, the mainstream US media has studiously ignored the coup side of the story, insisting there was no coup when there clearly was, and adopting I-see-nothing response to the presence of neo-Nazi militias leading the fight against the ethnic Russians. For the New York Times, the Washington Post and the rest of the US press, everything has been explained as Russian aggression, with Putin supposedly having plotted the entire series of events as a way to conquer much of Europe as the new Hitler. Even though the evidence reveals that Putin was caught off guard by the coup next door, the US media has insisted on simply passing along Newland's the US Assistant Secretary's propaganda theme. Thus, it's a pretty safe bet that when the current ceasefire breaks down and the killing resumes, all the American people will hear that it was Putin's fault, and the Australian press too, that he conspired to destroy the peace as part of his grand plan of aggression. And the, uh, the other little point that should be noted is that on the Ukrainian troops... They wear insignias, and one of the insignias on their helmet is a direct copy from Hitler's SS elite troops, the so-called wolf trap symbol. You can go to YouTube and you can see this. And this is worn on, on the helmets of the soldiers, showing exactly where their orientation was. They're fiercely anti-Semitic. They're pro-white supremacists. And... Uh, all over the Ukraine, the, all, uh, the Ukraine, the Ukrainian government has been putting up statues to people like Stephen Banderas, who was the fascist man in the Ukraine during the Second World War. At the same time as they're putting up these statues, local Ukrainians who well remember what the fascists did in the Ukraine are pulling them down. So we're not being told the truth about the Ukraine, and it's important that you understand what it is. I think, too, that people often focus on the machinations of the US and Russia rather than looking at the tensions within the Ukraine itself that led to the situation that's happening now, that that was also a contributing factor like neoliberalism and crisis in the Ukraine It's a desperately well. poor place. Mm. It's a desperately poor place. And you're quite right. The austerity measures life for ordinary people was pretty unbearable. But you're right. I mean... Putin clearly didn't, and Putin was obviously surprised by the United States would back fascists knocking off an elected government. Okay, it wasn't much of a government, it wasn't a good government, but it was the one that the Ukrainian people had elected, which would have thought, supposedly, would have been no-go territory of the United States. If it was elected, then that's okay. Not so. So any delusion that the Americans are there for democracy or liberty, rubbish, rubbish. They're there to make trouble and to isolate Russia. And that's been their plan all along. Well, it's, I remember it's from Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. He talks about, you know, you can literally count the column inches that are given to the despotic regimes that America doesn't support. There's plenty of that, you know, mm-hmm. condemning the Khmer yeah, Rouge yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, but if it might be, you know, a dictator and, you know, Timor-Leste who happens to be their ally, then they don't say anything about it. Well, if it's a more Saudi Arabia. Well, that's right. Well, Saudi Arabia, for God's sake. How can the US press stay away from Saudi Arabia unless they're complicit? 
like the local press is here. I mean, why aren't the, is the Herald Sun having enraged columns about Saudi Arabia cutting off people's heads, stopping women driving, cutting off people's hands, where there's no actual state budget in Saudi Arabia. It's the budget of the family, the Saudi family. Yeah, this is one country where the ruling class is the state. I suppose. Well, the state and the family. We're talking about the family, talking about the mafia. The family is in Saudi Arabia. There's about a thousand princes uh, in, in Saudi Arabia. That's that's the, what the ruling class is, these thousand princes who, uh, yeah, anyway. If you call treat, everyone a prince, you're going to ruin it. Well, that's right. You're going to lower the thing. Well, now, Princess, uh, Princess Kim, would you like to? Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, Australians cannot expect to be better off all the time and must accept the federal, gu- the federal budget. Um, and they must accept that it will not be fixed, this, the federal budget, by raising corporate tax rates, um, said a bunch of extremely rich slackers who have a stake in the matter. Uh, so nine prominent business lobby groups, including, and I'm going to read some of them off um, because it's actually good to know your enemy, I think. I think, absolutely. Uh, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. I think Our we friends. all know that one. Yes. Um, Australian Food and Grocery Council, which kind of sounds a bit benign, but... Um, the Austra- bastards. <laughs> bastards. <laughs> Australian Industry Group, Australian Pipeline Industry Association, Business Council of Australia, well, we all know them, mm. Mineral Council of Australia, we're not surprised, National Farmers Federation, HIS, uh, Council of Australia and the Restaurant and Catering Australia. Uh, I think they're the people who are pushing to get rid of penalty rates. Of course. Uh, So they all got together and released a joint statement calling on the government and politicians to abandon what they call short-termism, which is actually just code for not getting yourself chucked out of office. Mm. Um, They they want to abandon that in favour of difficult reforms such as those uh, that Abbott has been forced to abandon. And this is a quote from the statement. They say, With the Prime Minister signalling a dull budget and the opposition continuing to focus almost exclusively on budget fairness, you could be mistaken for thinking there is no significant problem with the state of the nation's finances. Correctly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And they say, We can't um, expect all of us to be better off all the time. And this is from uh, the Australian Chamber and Commerce and Industry CEO Kate Carnell, who apparently can expect to be better off all the time. Um, And this is what she told um, Sky News. She also said, conveniently, that the public could not expect hiking taxes on big business to help. (laughs) (laughs) Takes your breath away, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes. Despite the fact that this comes amid claims mining giants BHP Billiton and Rio Tinto are avoiding paying hundreds of millions of dollars in tax by channelling profits offshore. So I really think that even in their own terms, the federal budget could do with a couple of hundred million. Surely that would be somewhat useful. Oh, yes, but it's on rich people. and we, You can't take money off rich people. That's immoral. Oh, yes, yes. The business groups are also called on all sides of politics to, to show the same courage and zeal as did um, Hawke and Keating governments, your favourite. Yes, that's right. Um, well, they the set this government. whole process of liberalisation. What were the Liberals are carrying out today? The basis was laid by the Hawke and Keating government. Sorry. Yes, and actually they were much better at it, which is what business keeps crowing about. And mm. they say um, 
Hawke and Keating, this is the things that they praise Hawke and Keating for, um, for floating the dollar, uh, slashing tariffs, for selling off surplus assets, which I think is must be code for privatisation. Surplus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Establishing superannuation, uh, so grabbing workers' retirement money, and a move towards a decentralised industrial system of enterprise bargaining, which we all know has done so much damage to our unions. And all of these reforms, they say, had powerful and vocal critics, but they did them anyway through consultation and persistence. I'm not sure about that consultation part. but Well, they had the trade union bureaucracy on side. That's what the Labor Party can do that the Liberals can't do. Yeah, that was the social pact or the social wage that they were talking about. That's right. In other words, you forego wage increases, you accept less than inflation wage increases, and we'll make it up to you in the social wage, mm. like in social benefits. And they never did, of course, but that, that was the, 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 the bullshit promise that the union leadership's conservative bureaucracies went along with, that, OK, you're not going to get a wage increase, but it'll be better for you in the long run. Yeah, and I think they made arguments too that all higher pay workers, you know, you know, we need to distribute it better so that lower paid workers get more. And it's like actually the higher paid workers, if their wage comes down, it brings down everyone's wages. That's how market systems Which, they knew. Which they, they knew. Their aim was to reduce wages. So I'm going to read consultation as uh, they didn't lie well enough. That's what I'm going to read that as. Um, so they also say during the Howard and Costello years, they continued these structural reforms and undertook substantial fiscal repair and getting back and getting the budget back into the black, paying off the national debt and blah blah blah. Um, they also credit Howard and Costello with reforming the waterfront, which I actually remember that as them sending dogs and security guards onto the waterfront. So if that's what you think reform looks like, it's mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. paramilitary invasion of the waterfront. They also um, introduced individual agreements and the goods and services tax, which they say was in lieu of an inefficient state and federal taxes. And by that, I assume they mean that they are angry at the fact that they were getting taxed and the fact that consumers were not getting taxed. Uh, So again, they talk about how these reforms had powerful and vocal critics, but they did them anyway. And I assume that these powerful critics are the unions and the Australian working class. You know, the enemy as far as business is concerned. Of course, of course, of course. Of course, greedy workers, yes. Yes. And Scott Morrison said, um, I know the business community wants to see the budget come back into balance. If that's the case, I would love to see them out there supporting the changes to family tax benefits, the changes to retirement savings that we put in place in the last budget. And I'd like to see them supporting all of those very tough measures that, frankly, aren't that popular and haven't (laughs) made many friends. So Morrison accused the sector of hypocrisy for going missing in action when its support would have helped. So business are entitled, he says, to their view, but I noticed that they were pretty quiet in their support for New South Wales Premier Mike Bard um, during the election Mm -hmm. campaign there. And Morrison noted that while the unions were supporting Labor in its campaign against privatisation, he says, I don't remember too many business-funded ads actually supporting the case that Mike Bard put forward, but they will be enormous beneficiaries, pointing out that these businesses are going to make a huge amount of money from this privatisation. Right, which is probably why they didn't publicise it. Yes. So he also took aim at business for staying quiet on the $27 billion in budget measures that have been stalled in the Senate. 
and he criticises them for not backing these measures and, as he puts it, putting the wood on Bill Shorten and the crossbench about the need for budget repair. So basically they want business to get on side and start lobbying for them. And so Shorten responded... I they already were. Yeah. I mean, well, this imaginary, imaginary budgetary crisis has been touted by every business. You only go to Q&A and you'll get business mouthing the government line that all went to finances in a shocking mess. Although apparently Tony's cured that. He came out late and said, because of our wonderful things we've done in the last 12 months, there's no longer a budget crisis. He fixed it. He fixed it. He fixed it. You didn't notice. I didn't notice. Didn't know there was a crisis. Didn't know it had been fixed. But he's fixed it. I know. Oh, thank God. Yes, that's a relief. Yes. Um, and Shorten responded to this because the uh, the statement also criticised the, op- the opposition for focusing too much on fairness. And Shorten responded, Labor shares business's frustration that the Abbott, with the Abbott government, um, who has bungled reform and now appears to have given up on reform. And he says, Labor will support reform which is fair, Labor will fight reforms which are unfair, which is quite mealy-mouthed because... And it's rubbish It's too. just rubbish. And if... They know that if they want to keep business on side, they know exactly what they're What's going to have to do. Of them. What's and, required of them. And it certainly won't be fair. No, no, no. Well, it's a reduce the welfare bill. Exactly. Yeah. Stop paying for all these poor pledges. That's the attitude. And Joe Hockey joined in the criticism saying he would have liked to, he wants to see a return to the old days. Um, when business... What, 1650, perhaps? 1650. <laughs> um uh, yeah, when business invested its own money and capital to help argue for whatever policy right, they're trying right, to push. Right. So hockey um, harked back to the days when business groups rad, ran ad campaigns promoting tax reform and work choices. And he says, previously the business community has not only been an advocate for reform, they've actually put their hands in their pockets and helped to argue the case, he said. So I do share Scott Morrison's position that, you know, there are plenty of armchair critics. Uh, but as Teddy Roosevelt said, it's not the critic that counts. It's the person in the field getting the muddied hands. And I would encourage as many people as possible to join us in the paddock of reform. The so, paddock, <laughs> paddock of reform. Right. So you can see where he's going with that. That's next to the field of dreams, is it? Yes, yes and disappointment. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you can sort of see where he's going with it, except that weird comment about the paddock of reform. I don't know what that was about. But they want business to run a scare campaign like they did with the mining taxes. Um, However, the Australian Financial Review quoted one business figure who did not want to be named for some reason, um, and whoever this was said, um, stalled measures such as cuts to welfare and pensions would become even more unpopular if big business started advocating for them. Isn't that the truth? Yes. And I th- I wonder if this is not why big business hasn't been throwing its weight around in the Almost electorate. certainly. Almost certainly. Almost certainly. <laughs> in fact, the only, the only business groups that have would be the universities, I think. The group of eight who've kind of been, who've been campaigning in the public for deregulation. The right to deregulation. charge whatever fees they want. Yeah, and even they've kind of had to... Back, back down and yes. yell at the government. Yes, yes. Yeah, so it's, it just shows you what, you know, how incredibly unpopular these reforms are and how the popular mood really does influence what's happening higher up. And you can almost sympathise with poor Chris and Hockey, you know, because they've been out there bravely fighting to deepen the pockets of the already super rich. Mm. And these brats just 
sit there criticising from the sidelines. Poor line. brats at that. Poor brats, yeah. And, you know, they Chris and Hockey are out there. They don't know what's good for them. No, they don't. And it's it's hard work, you know, having to put up with, you know, all this rubbish that they're getting from disgusting, ordinary people and business isn't helping them at all. So I think they're just slackers. They make them well, quite. Well said. And your indignation on behalf of the Liberal government is... Well, <laughs> well, of course, there's a lot of talk about Karl Marx these days, as you would expect. In fact, uh, Rush Limbach, who's a US media commentator, accused the Pope of promoting pure Marxism. Pure? Pure Marxism, that's right. The Washington Times writer claimed that the New York City Mayor Bill de Basio is an unrepented Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, what, uh, what this really does show is that Marx's analysis of capitalism, which was predicted a century ago, is amazingly, amazingly revealing, showing beyond all doubt that Marx discovered the fundamental laws under which the capitalist system orig- uh, operates. And all the obfuscation by the rich and the powerful to deny this has proved futile. That even... Even the bourgeoisie are acknowledging that actually Marx got a lot of this stuff right. The inherently chaotic, crisis-prone nature of capitalism was a key part of Marx's writings. He argued that the relentless drive for profits would lead companies to mechanise their workplaces, producing more and more goods while squeezing workers' wages until they could no longer purchase the goods they created. That's true enough. Sure enough, modern historical events from the Great Depression to the dot-com bubble can be traced back to what Marx called fictitious capital. Financial instruments like stocks and credit default swaps. We produce and produce and produce until there's simply no one left to purchase our goods. No new markets, no new debts. The cycle's still playing out before our eyes. Broadly speaking, it's what made the housing market crash in 2008. Decades of deepening inequality reduced incomes, which have led to more and more Americans and Australians taking on debt. When there were no subprime borrowers left to scheme, the whole facade fell apart, just as Marx said it would. Secondly, Marx warned that capitalism's tendency to concentrate high value on essentially arbitrary products would over time lead to what he called a contriving and ever-calculating subservience to inhuman, sophisticated, unnecessary and imaginary appetites. In other words, it's a harsh, but as an accurate way of describing contemporary America and Australia, where we enjoy considerable luxury (coughs) (coughs) and yet are driven by a constant need to buy more and more stuff to buy. iPods. Exactly. Consider the iPod you've got now. Is it really much better than the one that you had last year or the one before that, the year before? It's got an S in front of it. It must be better. It must be better. Is this a real need or, as you point out, an invented one? While Chinese families fall sick with cancer from our e-waste, mega corporations are creating entire advertising campaigns around the idea that we should destroy, destroy perfectly good products for no reason but to keep capitalism going. Thirdly, Marx's ideas about overproduction led him to predict what is now called globalisation, the spread of capitalism across the planet in search of new markets. Quoting Marx, the need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe, he wrote. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. 
Well, this is pretty obvious stuff now, but Marx wrote those words in 1848, when globalisation was over a century away. And he wasn't just right about what ended up happening in the late 20th century, he was right about why it happened. The relentless search for new markets and cheap labour, as well as the incessant demand for more natural resources, are beasts that require constant feeding. Fourthly, the classic theory of economics assumed that competition was natural and therefore self-sustaining. Marx argued, however, that market power would actually be centralised in large monopoly firms as business increasingly preyed on each other. So this piece, oh, competition's good, competition's good, but competition inevitably leads to its opposite, monopoly. Americans came to take it for granted that property would be widely disused as a way of dis- uh, diffusing uh, economic and political power throughout society. It was only later in the 20th century that the trend that Marx foresaw began to accelerate. Today, mum and, sh- and dad shops have been replaced by big box stores like Kmart, Walmart. Small banks have been replaced by mega banks uh, like J.P. Morgan Chase. And small farmers have been replaced by agribusiness. The tech world is already becoming centralised, with big corporations sucking up the startups as fast as they can. P- politicians give lip-, lip service to small business lobbies, lobbies and prosecute the most violent of antitrust abuses. But for the most part, we know big business is growing, is here to stay, and small business is on the decline. Fifthly, Marx believed that wages would be held down by a reserve army of labour, which he explained simply using classical economic techniques. Capitalists want to pay as little as possible for labour, and this is easiest to do when there are many workers floating around. So when there's unemployment, it means you can lower the wages. Uh, We could predict that high unemployment would keep wages stages as profits soared. Exactly what's happened. Because workers are too scared of unemployment to quit their terrible exploitative jobs. And what do you know? No less authority than the World Street Journal warns, quote, Lately the US recovery has been displaying some Marxist traits. <laughs> Corporate profits are on a tear, and rising productivity allows companies to grow without doing much to reduce the ranks of the unemployed. That's because workers are terrified to lose their job, and therefore bargaining power. It's no surprise that the best time for equitable growth is during terms of full employment, when unemployment is low and workers... Uh, workers are subject to reduced wages. Marx, remember, argued for a progressive income tax, which, for example, the uh, GST is not. He argued for this in the Communist Manifesto at a time when not one country on the planet had a progressive tax. And now it's, and everyone would agree that a progressive tax is actually a basis of civilization. Yeah, tax the rich is an extremely popular, so not, not controversial at all among ordinary people. Well, no, eat the rich, I think, is even a more graphic. <laughs> yes. And even more graphic. Well, they're not giving us much choice the way things are going. <coughs> well, that's about all we're going to have left to eat, is uh, the rich, and that would be a pleasure, let me tell you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.